Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, I uh, think it's always important to level set a little. And, uh, you know, when we uh, started into this series, The Greatest Story Ever Told, we, uh, in eight weeks, you know, decided we would do the entire Bible and start in Genesis, Genesis and make our way all the way through. And just for fun, we started in Revelation and then backed up, you know, because why would we want to do anything normal? And... Uh, this year we thought, well, since we're in the middle of Vacation Bible School, we'll just make it all fit together. And, uh, and so uh, what you see is sort of the result of uh, Vacation Bible School. And uh, so what I, I'm saying all that to say you only have a couple more weeks to uh, enjoy the jungle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then uh, we'll be back to somewhat normal, whatever that might look like. Everybody all right? <laughs> so what happens out here in the jungle is... <laughs> It's a dangerous place. There's all kinds of stuff. To... We've been thinking about this question, and that is, what is the narrative of the Bible? What is it saying? If someone asks you, what's the story of the Bible? Could you, in some concise way, convey uh, the content of that story? And then the second question is, and what does that mean to you right now? Why, why does that matter to you today in the life you're living and in the things that are happening in your circumstances and family? And we've talked about these motifs that tie everything together. And when we're working in this way, we're doing biblical theology. We're trying to tie together the narrative in the way that it uh, is actually cohesively put together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how that has woven together in this intricate and powerful story, a story uh, of uh, creativity and a story of redemption and a story of purpose and a story of promise. And, and today we're talking about a story of incarnation. And we've been talking along the way about these summation moments in Scripture where we kind of get a whole biblical theology in one verse or one section of verses or one story. And we've talked about John 10.10. 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's a, that's a great summary of the biblical narrative. Now, there's a force that works against uh, life and against joy and against peace and uh, and then there is God who has come that you and I might have life and have it to the full. And he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. And what's the fuel that you burn when you attempt to fix your mind on God? Because naturally my brain does not fixate on God or on faith or on optimism. My brain normally is drawn to things that more steal and kill and destroy than things that give life. It's a discipline. It is discipleship that turns my face, my view upward instead of outward and uh, teaches me the grace of God. One section that I think uh, is a great summation chapter is Luke 15. And, and, and it's a great summation chapter because in it Jesus is describing the heart of the Father. And, and he's talking to us about these three very compelling stories of the lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal. And, and, and so as he's telling these stories, the stories themselves are incredibly vivid and powerful as they reveal to us maybe even a surprising nature of God, maybe something about God that we haven't really understood. But when we look back and we 
think of Luke 15 as a summation statement, we really see this attitude of God present all throughout Scripture from the very beginning. And, and so we have this moment where Jesus is describing the nature of the Father is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 are safe, but one is lost. Will he not go in search of the one lost sheep? And will he not search and search and search and search? And, and we're, we're told, we're What's conveyed to us is that there is this ache at the heart of the Father. There's an ache to reach to where we are, to where his sheep are. And, and then the story of the lost coin. And, and now we have a woman who has very, very little. What she has is a treasure, and it's very precious. She has only ten coins, and one is missing. And she doesn't just go, ah, I got plenty. You know, somebody said, you know, you can, uh, you can measure the level of your wealth by what quantity of money has to be on the ground that you would bend over and pick up, you know? So, like, I think for Bill Gates, it has to be, like, you know, a significant amount of money for him to bend over and pick it up. That's probably not true. He probably picks up pennies. That's usually how that works. But this woman has a very limited amount. She has ten coins, and she loses one. Will she not take everything out of her house and sweep and sweep and sweep and sweep until she finds and recovers that one lost coin because it is her treasure and it represents such a significant loss to her that she can't live with the loss. And then this astonishing story is like a father that has not one son but two sons. And the one son in open rebellion and defiance goes out and practices all kinds of things that polite people don't talk about. And there's an attitude issue with this boy. He, we're told that he doesn't really come to his senses until he runs out of money. Some of us feel that way about our children. I mean, you know, I mean, some of us, you know, when our child comes up and gives us a big hug, we're like, uh-oh. There's a major purchase on the horizon. He doesn't come to this moment of regret. He doesn't come to the... In fact, we're told that he just keeps going. And then he, when he runs out of money, he gets a job to try to finance. And it's not until he's actually broken down and starving that he says, you know what? The servants in my father's house have it better than I do. And he decides to go back. He writes a speech. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your child. Please let me come and simply be a servant in your household. And while he's still a long way off, the father sees him. And he runs to him. And he puts the ring on his finger and the robe on his shoulders. And he says, kill the fatted calf. My son who was dead is now alive. It's an astonishing view of the nature of God spoken into a context where that is not how people saw God at all. But the story doesn't end with the son who's been out practicing these things. There's another son who has stayed home and done all the right things, who has simply broken with his father in his attitude, who has harbored all kinds of things inside of him. It's never manifest itself on the outside, but it has percolated on the inside. And now it's full of resentment and pride and anger. And the response of the father to the child with the attitude is one of grace and mercy and love and welcoming him, welcoming, welcoming him in. Wow. It's good that I talk for a living. 
But part of the power of the story is the context in which it is spoken. It's not just that Jesus is speaking these words. Luke tells us in the opening of chapter 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. So, so the context is, if you wanted a summation moment, here is God in the presence of lost folks telling a story about the love of God and the compassion that he has for lost sheep and lost coins and lost children. While the religious folks stand in a corner and the language is vivid and muttered. Muttered about the fact that why would God ever pay attention to these people? Why would God ever pay attention to this situation? This is the context into which the incarnation of God lives and breathes and exists. And we're also told in this process and in this story that when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, will he not call his friends and have a great celebration? When the woman finds her lost coin, will she not call her neighbors and have a great celebration? When the son comes home, will they not kill the fatted calf and have this great party? And, and, and Jesus is conveying the joy at the heart of God as we are reunited with the Father. And folks in that day and age, they didn't consider God to be something of joy, but rather wrathful and overbearing and legalistic and judgmental. And a summation into this context of lost people, the presence of God comes, a shepherd searching for lost sheep, a woman in search of her treasure, a father uniting his family and sons again. And it's a vivid, vivid illustration. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he, he's conveying to us a lot of stories, a, a, a lot of great truths about God. But how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. So for the rest of you, please read them. It's a group of children's stories. If you don't want to read them for yourself, read them to a child. Uh, hopefully one you know and are connected to. <laughs> But so vividly in the opening, when we're first introduced to Narnia, which is in the second book, we, we find a place, and it's, this is spoken over it almost immediately. It's a place where it's always winter and never Christmas. And, and I, from the first time I read that story as a, as a teenage kid, I, I, love that, I love that phrase. It's always winter and never Christmas. And I didn't really appreciate how significant it was. As I've gotten older, it's, it's really started to bear down a little bit. Imagine this. We're introduced to this place where it's frozen and dead. It's winter. There's, there's, life is underground. It's hidden away. There's, there's fear. It's, it's this overwhelming context that we're introduced to Narnia. And then we're told this statement several times in the opening of the book. We're told this statement. It's always winter and never Christmas. And you start to think about that. Because the hope of this God intervening, this, this hope of the incarnation coming into this place that's frozen and dead and fearful and oppressive, that this is the celebration of Christmas. It's not a moment. It's, it's God entering into this place and falling out and, and bringing life and ushering in spring and, and allowing things to happen. And as you read that story, you vividly find that that's what's happening. There's the thaw and the winter melts away and things bring new life. And what a vivid image it is for us of the incarnation. And so we're going to do a little philosophy and everybody up for philosophy today? <laughs> a little philosophy, a little history. 
Heraclitus was a, a Greek philosopher who lived in 560 BC, and he's the famous philosopher who said the world is full of flux. It's always in movement. Nothing ever stays the same. It's a chaotic world that is filled with motion. He famously illustrated this by saying, if you go down and you put your foot in the river and you take your foot out of the river and you put your foot back in the river, then the, you are not putting your foot back in the same river because that river is gone. It has already moved past, and that's how life is. You can't hang on to it. It keeps moving. We, we vividly know this because of children. If you've had them... You know, they are little for eight seconds. And when they're little, you think they'll never grow up and never stop crying. And then you very quickly, you're like, uh-oh, what happened? That's why grandparents are so good at what they do. It's because we know we're going to sit right here in this space and we're going to play this game or drive this truck or whatever it is we're going to do because this child will be in college tomorrow and we're going to hang on. And while we love who they become, we miss who they were <laughs> very much. And so he said, the world is in constant flux. But somehow the world in this constant motion and constant chaos and constant flux holds together. And so what is it that holds together the chaos? Why is there some sort of ordered chaos? It's not just chaos in motion. It's an ordered chaos in motion. And he coined the phrase... There is a power at the center of the universe that holds the chaos in order, that won't let it slip too far away. And that force at the center of the universe is divine. And he named the source at the center of the universe, this divine force, the Logos. It's the Logos, that's what it is. Not only did he say that it orders the chaos of the world, but it orders the events of the world. So that the events of the world, though they seem random, are all working towards a telos, towards a place of destiny, towards a place where everything is achieving its intended purpose. So you could sit back in this world of chaos and motion and relax because not only is the world and the chaos being held together by the force at the center of the universe, the logos, but, but also the events of the world are being held together and funneled and shaped together towards a purpose. But not only that, he said, in our inner world and in our inner chaos, that force works in the same way. It orders what's going on inside of us. It teaches us what is right and what is wrong. It helps order our thoughts and our emotions so that they come together in a thing called maturity. It is the divine logos that generates that reality in us. And so from 560 BC on, we see this concept of the Logos starting to weave its way later, much later. The Stoics come along and they pick up on the idea. And they love the idea that, that the Logos is this divine force and they define it a little further, the divine force of God. And the divine force of God drives the universe. In fact, the Stoics came along and said, not only did the Logos drive the world, but it actually made the world and put it in motion and then maintains its energy and its force. And so the Stoics understood this concept of this controlling, powerful force at the center of the universe. Let's leave the philosophers for just a moment and talk for a moment about history. The Jews uh, understand the power of words. They have always understood the power of words. Words are this uh, sort of idea that uh, they're very sacred, and, and what you say is not something you can take back. Words have energy, and once you release them, they go do their thing. And so, if you've, as we've talked about over these months and weeks, and we talked about 
the blessing of Isaac on Jacob, and why don't you just take it back? It wasn't you get the wrong kid. Uh, that's not how it worked. Jewish culture, the words were spoken, they can't be retrieved. They have power and life of their own. So sacred are words in the Hebrew history that, that, that the Hebrews have intentionally kept their vocabulary very small. So in Hebrew, there's about 10,000 words as compared to Greek, in which there's about 200,000 words. And so how words are used and how they're shaped is very important. So that you know this, but in the ancient scriptures written in Hebrew, the, the name of God was not written out. It was considered to be profane to write down the name of God. So there was simply a symbol without all the letters present of what God was about. When we attributed God or God was included in the narrative, it was spoken of in that euphemistic way. Well, the you, everybody still with me? <laughs> Fully engaged. I mean, oh, the energy in the room. I love it when he talks about language. <laughs> By the way, what we're doing here is called exegesis. It's, we are exegeting a passage of scripture. You don't know that yet. But, but in a minute, we're going to read a scripture, and then you're going to go, oh, that makes more sense now. <laughs> and so the Jews then, the, the Hebrew language died out. The actual spoken Hebrew language died out in the 6th century B.C. It, it was no longer a spoken language. Instead, the Jews began to speak a derivative of Hebrew called Aramaic. And it was a dead language from the 6th century B.C. until the late 19th century. It has now been revived. It is now the state language of the nation of Israel. So Hebrew is once again spoken. But it had died out. So when Jesus lived, he spoke Aramaic. And so we have the Old Testament that was recorded in ancient Hebrew. And then along about the 6th century B.C., then we have this dying out of the language. It's only used in scholarship and liturgical reasons. And so the people decided they needed a translation of the old Hebrew scriptures in Aramaic. And so they created a translation. And those are called the Targums. Now... It's just, it's just this transcendent moment that these are being translated into Aramaic. And not only do they decide that they can't speak the name of God, they broaden it. They don't even want to talk about God in general. And so they change the language of the Old Testament from God to the Word of God. The Word of God becomes the euphemism reference, the euphemistic reference to God. Trust me, this is going somewhere. Trust the Logos. So that Exodus 19.11, which reads in ancient Hebrew, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, was translated in the Targum. Moses brought the people of God out of the, out, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. Uh, the Sabbath is a sign between you and me, became between my word and you. Deuteronomy 9.3, God is a consuming fire, reads the word of God is a consuming fire. And in those periods of time, because the word of God now was a replacement for the word God, then they began to associate the wisdom of God with the word of God. So that the wisdom of God became embodied in the word of God. So if you were going to talk about Sophia, the wisdom issues, those were all tabernacled in the idea of the word of God. Everybody with me? John comes along, and he desires to describe the next great movement of the narrative. And the next great movement of the narrative is the incarnation of God in human flesh. How do you describe that? How do you find the language to describe what it is God is doing? 
And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, two things happen in John 1. The first thing is he decides under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he will take us back to the opening of the very first words, in the beginning. He will parallel the story of creation, not only in its actual language, but also in the unfolding of two things. In the unfolding of life and light. Light and life. Life and light. It's going to be woven through this first chapter of John as he recreates this imagery. But now the light and the life mean something very, very different. In the beginning was the word, the logos. Every Jew who heard these words would have connected immediately with the compelling nature of what he writes. Every Gentile who heard these words would immediately connect with the significance, the force at the center of the universe that holds all things together. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the word of God, the mind and character of God, the very presence of God. Now, listen to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, or human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Logos, the mind and character of God, the controlling force at the center of the universe, the divine creator who created the world and put it in motion, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I can't even imagine how John must have felt as he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. He must have been, yes, Yes, oh yes, oh yes, yes, oh, this is going to work. God, I, I, I would be so naive as to think, don't you imagine that God was already working with Heraclitus to create a concept and a language and an understanding and a philosophy in which God could send his son and it would resonate deeply into the hearts and minds of people meeting them philosophically where they had lived for hundreds of years? Don't you think that God was engineering in the minds of the Stoics a language and understanding of the divine force at the middle of the universe so that John could write these words and say, Here's what God is, 
getting you in the fullness of time, Christ came. Don't you think that in the nature of the way the Jews had thought and understood, that they would understand the Logos, the Word of God, tabernacled in human flesh? Don't you think that, that somehow that would set off all sorts of thoughts in their heads of, of saying, really? The Word of God tabernacled in human flesh, dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only? And then Jesus stands in the, in the context of people who are broken and fractured. And he becomes fully present with them. That in Luke 15, what a great illustration. Where's Jesus hanging out? He's with the lost folks. And who's upset about it? The church folks. <laughs> the, the folks who are are trying somehow to get God under control. I don't know about you, but isn't it better if, at some level, isn't it better if it's a legalistic system? I mean, isn't it better if you just keep the rules and then everything's okay? I mean, isn't it inconvenient to think that... I mean, take, for example, the, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. How do you read the law? Obey your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. And how are you doing with that? These have kept since my youth. Great legalistic system. Clean. Convenient. Easily measured. Here's the law. Here's the rules. I've done all the things. I'm good. One thing you lack... Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have an inheritance in heaven. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, it's so much easier to be legalistic, to get God under control, to, to, to narrow both what he might ask of us but also how we understand who he is. Once you let God become incarnate in human flesh and dwell among us, and you begin to be invited into a place of relationship where God keeps showing up where you are. He keeps showing up in your thoughts, in your attitude, in your situation, in your circumstances, in your marriage, in your home, in your family, in your job, at your school. It's so much easier to go visit God at the church than have him showing up inconveniently. So much easier. So much easier to, to know, well, it's Sunday. I grew up in Texas, you know that. And uh, Texas still has blue laws, which are, anybody know what blue laws are? Good. Blue laws are rules on Sunday for what you can and cannot buy because it's Sunday. So today, if you go to the grocery store in Texas, you will find the liquor department has been curtained off. You cannot buy liquor on Sunday. You must buy it all Saturday night. <laughs> Because God, God is, he can bless liquor on Saturday night, but not on Sunday. But I grew up very much in that context of it's Sunday, and we have certain behaviors on Sunday. So I grew up, and you weren't supposed to read the paper on Sunday, which is silly because that's the biggest paper of the week. 
and there were things that I, I did grow up early on. We didn't go to restaurants on Sunday because you were you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, and if you were buying food on the Sabbath, you were causing other people to work. At some point, my mom saw the light, and <laughs> we went to Furs because you know everybody know what that is. It's a cafeteria because then people didn't come to your table and wait on you. You you did the work. And the great descent began. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I had Sunday clothes. I still have Sunday clothes. They're just not as nice as they used to be. And you could, you could die if you messed up your Sunday clothes. Grass stains on your Sunday clothes was a capital crime. It was a capital crime. I mean, you literally were going to be in very, very serious problems. But all of that outward work was not what God was really after. It was more convenient. It was, it was a way of controlling. And, and I don't, you know, there was something very, very special about Sunday and the Sabbath. And I, 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 we've lost some of what that was and how it felt and it was a very significant day in the life of our family. But God wanted so much more. He wanted not people going through the motions, but people living the life. He wanted people engaged in the attitude. He wanted people conveying the love and the grace and the kindness. And the only way that the story really becomes the story is for this reality that God from the moment in the garden has been attempting to restore his creation. He's been attempting to reconcile and reconcile and reconcile and reconcile and he's done it through the law and he's done it through the judges and he's done it through the prophets and he's done it through the kings. And all of that is incomplete. He has woven himself through the narrative of Israel. But now he is tabernacled in human flesh. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with us, but one who was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. So let us come confidently before the throne of grace. Don't you love the wording? <laughs> let us come confidently or boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of need. You see, this is a story of incarnation. God tabernacled in human flesh and dwelling among us. My question to you this morning is this. Where do you desperately need God to show up? Is it in your emotions? Is there a sort of an inner chaos? Maybe it's in our minds a place where you would invite the divine controlling force at the center of the universe to be manifest in that inner world to create order out of chaos. He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. What, what is the fuel that you burn to fixate on the power of God? He invites us into a place to understand that he is in the business of reordering our inner world, of resettling our broken hearts, of renewing our broken minds is it in some circumstances that you're facing and going through 
the very story of God is that God shows up in those places. That's the beauty of the narrative. That's what the... It is not always winter and never Christmas. Christmas comes. There is a thaw. There is new life. Right into the heart of where we're frozen up. Right into the heart of what's broken in us. And maybe those circumstances seem impossible. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. He comes into impossible circumstances. And not everything is good, but in all things he works for the good. So that not just the world that's in chaos is held together, but the events of life are held together for a greater purpose. There's a greater reason. They're not all good. What some intend for evil, God uses for good. That's the promise. That's our faith. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a chronic health thing. that You're just like, I'm so worn out. I'm so worn out. I need strength. I need your strength to be made perfect in my weakness. Maybe it's an acute health situation, and you need God to work in you, and you need God to heal you, and you need God to give you the strength to get through whatever it is that it's going to take to get from where you are to where you need to be. I don't know. I don't like to go to the doctor. How do you feel? I don't want another procedure. I don't want anything else. So maybe God needs to give us the strength, the patience, the hope, the encouragement. Maybe it's relational. Maybe there's some broken relationships and you just don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to fix them anymore. It's okay to just take our hands off and invite God into it and say, God, I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll say what you want. I'll, I'll let go. I'll, I just need you to work in this. I need you to be present in this, reconciling, making things right, making them whole. As far as it goes with me, I... I don't have any fight left in me. I will live at peace with all people as far as it goes with me. Whatever the nature of it is, this is a story of incarnation. God is not out there somewhere. God is in here. God is present with his creation. He's like a good shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 are safe. Will he not leave the 99? He is not content for you to be out there alone in whatever lost way you are, whether it's in your head or your heart or your mind or your spirit. Maybe it's your practices. Maybe it's your attitudes. This God seeks you, loves you, seeks to be with you. We find all kinds of creative ways to describe that. Some of you, you have that poem on your wall somewhere about footprints. How many of you have that somewhere in your house? How many of you know what I'm talking about? I don't even need to reference it then, do I? <laughs> Didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia, but you know that poem, don't you? <laughs> so sophisticated. But we use those phrases, don't we? Looking over my life, I see all of those footprints. I noticed there were times there was a single set of footprints. They correspond to the hardest times in my life. What's that about God? Amen? We've all had that conversation a time or two. What's that about? It was then that I carried you. God's not out there somewhere. He's in here. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So that Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will send you a comforter, a paraclete to come beside you, to walk with you, to hold you through every single step of your life. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I will celebrate you. I have distinct joy in you. You don't have to believe this story, but you do have to admire its elegance. It is a story of incarnation. God, would you help us? In this room, by live stream, there are some folks that need you to be incarnate in their life and situation. Thank you for a story in which at the very heart of God is this desire to be fully present with his creation. Whether it's the metaphor of lost sheep or lost coins or lost children, whether it's the vivid reality of the Logos tabernacled in human flesh, the light of the world in which there is life, the powerful story of the recreation of the order of things, no longer God separate from his creation, but God fully present with his creation. I pray that every single person in this room would feel the power and grace of God wrapped around them. That in the quiet of this moment, we could breathe in your presence. That we could sense your everlasting arms lifting and holding us. Not a high priest who cannot empathize with our weaknesses. The one who was tempted in every way as we are tempted yet was without sin. That we come confidently before the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. Whether the need is in our head, our, our heart, our relationship, are our bodies, are just discouragement and loneliness, would you be fully present in us? You came to your own and your own did not recognize you. May we recognize you today. Recognize you into the afternoon and evening and the week ahead of us. May we be reminded again and again and again of the incarnate prejudice at the heart of God. That the word, the logos, became flesh so that we could behold your glory. Open our eyes that we might see and be fully present, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.